continuing on in our series in the Epistle to the Galatians. And this morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 24. Galatians 1, 10-24 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fathers, we gather together this morning. We come before You not in our own name. We come before You in the name of Christ. And we come into Your presence not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. And because of His name and His righteousness, we also come before You with great boldness and confidence. Asking You to send Your Holy Spirit to empower Your Word, to give us ears to hear. Father, we ask You to send Your Spirit not to just give us greater understanding, but to transform our lives. Father, I want to ask You to bring healing to Your people. And we ask this again confidently in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I've had this experience. I wonder if you have as well. Uh, You drive by a church and you notice the church sign out front and you look at the church sign and it has the name of the pastor and his title on the, on the sign. And it says something like, Apostle John Smith. And you think, Apostle? Really? Are there apostles today? Not in the technical, biblical sense of the term. Um, to be an apostle required strict qualifications. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1, if you will. So going backwards, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Romans. Could any of you recite the whole Bible backwards from Revelation to Genesis? (laughs) Acts chapter 1. Judas has hung himself 
And the Scripture says that He needs to be replaced so that there can be twelve apostles. And then they give the qualifications uh, for what's needed to fulfill that vacancy. And we read beginning in Acts 1, verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day He was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to His resurrection. So we'll just stop right there. Uh, Two qualifications. They need to be with the disciples the whole time of Jesus' ministry from the time He was baptized by John till the time He was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And they have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Those are the qualifications that are needed if they're going to fulfill the vacancy left by Judas. Furthermore, there are signs of a true apostle. Turn ahead now. Going back, going forward. 2 Corinthians 12. 12. Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty miracles, mighty works. So when I see a sign out front that says Apostle John Smith, I want to say, tell me about the miracles. Tell me about when the resurrected Lord appeared to you personally and commissioned you as an apostle. That's what a true apostle is in the technical sense of the word. Now, Paul is in a difficult situation because he's not one of the twelve. He came after the twelve. So now turn back. 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul describes briefly how this came about. And of course, we'll look at it later in Galatians. But look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15.8-9 after talking about different resurrection appearances of Christ, different apostles, and then to 500 on one occasion. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So you have the twelve apostles and then Paul says, and I'm one untimely born. Later, he appeared to me and he commissioned me as an apostle. Now, this abnormal calling of Paul made him vulnerable because in a sense he was independent. He's out there on his own. And because of that, he was open to different charges about whether or not he was a true apostle, whether or not he was really preaching the true gospel. And the Judaizers uh, were bringing charges against him. We talked about the Judaizers last week. Uh, These were teachers who were saying, it's good that you put your faith in Jesus, but, and we all shudder, but it's not good enough. You also need to be circumcised and you need to obey the law of Moses if you're going to be completely accepted by God. And these Judaizers were bringing charges against Paul. 
And they were basically, there were three charges. First of all, they said he's not really a true apostle. His apostleship is secondhand. In other words, uh, the twelve apostles sent him out, uh, but he's not a, quote, true apostle, bona fide apostle who was sent by Jesus. He's a secondhand apostle, and he's actually a second rate apostle. Um, also, they were saying um, that his gospel is also secondhand. He didn't get it directly from Jesus, he got it from the apostles. And they were also saying, and his gospel as well is second rate at best. In fact, they were saying his gospel is not really a true gospel because he's teaching that all that's necessary for salvation is that you put your faith in Christ. And you don't have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And then there was a third charge. Uh, they were saying that his gospel was cheap and easy because he's a people pleaser. He's a people pleaser. Paul's afraid that if he tells the Gentiles they have to be circumcised, they're going to go, ouch! I don't want to have to do all that. So Paul's basically saying, tell you what, we'll make it really easy for you. Just put your faith in Christ and we'll, we'll welcome you. So these false teachers were saying he's not a true apostle. His gospel isn't inaccurate. And basically, the bottom line is he's, he's just a people pleaser. Now, how is Paul going to answer these serious accusations that are brought against him? Uh, he's going to do it directly and indirectly. Directly and indirectly. Uh, directly, he's just going to provide straightforward answers defending his apostolic authority. Uh, his gospel and the charge that he's a people pleaser. And indirectly, he's going to answer these charges with his very life. This is important. His very life will show the veracity of his apostleship and his gospel. We could call this an autobiographical apologetic. An autobiographical apologetic. And of course, if you look at Galatians 1 and 2, as many commentators have pointed out, it's pretty obvious that we have an autobiographical uh, section where Paul talks about himself and how he met Christ and how he preached and how he encountered Peter and how he went up to Jerusalem. So he talks about himself um, quite a bit in this passage. Now, this is important. Uh, we just finished up a series called Objections to Christianity Answered. And we got a little more philosophical than we normally do. We talked about some big questions. Um, why does God allow suffering? How can a loving God send, send people to hell? How can we know that the Bible really is God's Word? How, how can we be so narrow-minded as to say Jesus is the only way to God? And at the end of that series, you, you could get the impression that only really smart, winsome, brainiacs with multiple graduate degrees are able to be good apologists or good evangelists for Jesus. Uh, in other words, you got to be really smart if you're going to uh, explain the Gospel to people and defend the faith. What should we say to that? Never underestimate the fact that you are your best apologetic argument for the truth of the Gospel. You 
and your life is a very persuasive argument for the gospel. The power of a simple Christian who radiates with concern for others, peace in the midst of difficult circumstances, confidence in God's promises is a force to be reckoned with. That's so important. I'm going to say it again. A simple Christian who really loves God and loves others, who has a joy on his or her face that just brightens everybody's day, who walks through life with peace, confident that my God is, is with me. If God is with me, who can be against me? That kind of Christian is a force to be reckoned with. That kind of Christian says to everybody that knows that person, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is real. How do you know it? Just look at Him. Just look at her. There's no other explanation for their life and how they live. So let's look at Paul's response. And again, he's going to respond directly and indirectly. So let's look at these three charges one by one. The first charge, his apostleship is from the twelve. In order to answer this, he's going to give his, what we call, testimony. How he came to faith in Christ. How he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So in other words, he's saying to the Galatians, you, you heard about who I was before I became a Christian. You know what kind of person I was. And if you don't know about it, you can check it out with others because I was a public figure. Everybody knew what I was doing. He goes on and he says in verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. That also could be verified. Uh, it sounds like he was bragging here, but it was true. He was excelling because of his incredible intellectual gifts and, and his abilities. He was excelling. He was probably valedictorian of his class. He really was that kind of a person. And then in verse 15 he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son in me, in order that I might preach to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now, let me stop right here. Um, he is describing what happened on the road to Damascus. Now, if you were here three weeks ago, Tom was preaching and he went through Acts 9 and he showed us the narrative of when Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus and how he was dramatically converted when he was knocked off his high, ho high horse and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's the narrative. Now here, Paul is giving us the theology that describes what happened or why it happened on the road to Damascus. And notice how he describes it. He says, But when he, talking about God, had set me apart before I was born, now, now stop right there. Paul, thinking through his conversion. Now, how did this all come about? He's thinking, you know what? God really chose me before I was ever born. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preacher, said, 
I know God chose me before I was born because He had no reason to choose me after I was born. And Paul would concur with that. So often we think, I, I chose Christ. I put my faith in Him. And then we read through the New Testament and we come across Ephesians 1. And He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. We say, Wait a second. And we read it again. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. And we say, Wait a second. I, I thought I chose Him, but the Bible is very clear that even before the creation of... He already chose me. Now, I, I think this, this is awesome because sometimes people say, I'm a seeker. And you might even be here today thinking, I'm, I'm seeking. Here's the truth. God is coming after you. The hound of heaven is drawing you to Himself. That's what's going on. And that's awesome. So if God is saying to you, you know, what is this all about? And, and you're asking questions. Realize that God is coming after you. And I would just say to you what the author of the book of Hebrews says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. God went after Saul. God goes after all of His people and He makes Himself known to them in His time. Why does He do this? Paul goes on and he says, who called me by His grace. It's just pure grace. And then he says, and who was pleased to reveal His Son to me. It's just His good pleasure to make Himself known to us. None of us deserves to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but it's God's good pleasure to make Him known to us. And then there's always a purpose. He calls us and He saves us and then He has work for us to do. And the job He had for Saul, also known as Paul, was to preach him among the Gentiles. And that's what he says in 16. And then he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter's other name, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. So what's, what's Paul saying here? Um, I did not get my apostolic authority from the twelve. I didn't even see them for at least three years following my conversion. I went into Arabia for three years. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and, and, and I saw Peter, but it was only for 15 days. And then I, just, I saw James. I didn't even see any other apostles. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem to meet with Barnabas and the apostles. So then 14 years later, finally. So basically, he's saying, I could not have possibly have gotten my apostolic office from the apostles because I didn't even see them. I wasn't in Jerusalem. The believers in Jerusalem, they never even met me. They don't know about me. They just heard about me because my reputation preceded me because of how dramatic my conversion was. So it's not even possible that I got my apostolic authority from them. I didn't even see them. Now, by the way, before we move on, 
Notice that for three years, he was in the deserts of Arabia. What was he doing in the deserts of Arabia? Tom, you know what he was doing in the desert of Arabia? He was getting his MDiv. <laughs> God was preparing him for ministry. Do you know what Paul had to do? Paul had to read through the Bible what he had at the time. We call it the Old Testament. You can also refer to it as the Older Testament. You know what he was doing? He was saying, wow, in light of my encounter with Jesus, I have to read through it all over again. And he really did. And, and sometimes we think, you know, just God just zapped him. So now he was able to understand what it was all about. God didn't just zap him. God said, you're going to come in Arabia and I'm going to teach you. And it's going to take three years of hard study. Sometimes God puts us aside in dry desert times so He can prepare us for ministry. That's how God works. He has great plans for Joseph. He's going to be second in command over the nation of Egypt. But before that happens, 13 years of heartache. Moses, his life is basically three, three categories. 40 years, he's in Egypt. 40 years, he's in the wilderness. And finally, at the age of 80, God says, you're now ready for ministry. 80 years old. And for the next 40 years, he's, he's in ministry. And, and some have jokingly put it, put it this way, it took 40 years for Egypt to get into Moses and then 40 years for God to get Egypt out of Moses and prepare him for ministry. But God has all kinds of plans. But I, I have to tell you honestly, usually you're going to have to go through some desert time. God's going to have to teach you. God's going to have to refine your character so you can come out on the other side and He can say, now I'm ready to use you. And by that time, you're like, Lord, I, I'm so humble. I'm so broken. And God says, I know. <laughs> That's what it took so I could use you. I had to humble you and I had to break you. Now you're perfect because now you're so weak and you're looking to me. Now let's go. So don't, don't despise those, those desert times. So, second accusation. Paul's Gospel was from the Twelve. Now, obviously, for the same reason that his apostleship wasn't from the Twelve, his, his Gospel didn't come from the Twelve because he didn't hardly see them. But in addition to the reasons that we just gave, Paul's 180 degree turn from being a persecutor of the church to being a proclaimer of of the faith can only be explained by one thing. He met Jesus personally on the road to Damascus. Martin Luther, before he became a Christian, was an Augustinian monk. And he was the most devoted monk you ever saw. Some of you have heard the stories. Uh, he would confess his sin for three hours at a time. And you know how it worked in the Catholic Church. You know, you confessed your sins not silently before the Lord like we do here. You confessed your sins to another person. So imagine the priest that had to listen to Martin Luther for three hours go on and on and on about all his sins, you know. I can just imagine it. You know, the priest, he's looking at his watch, you know, and thinking, oh, why did I have to get Luther, you know? I, I, I'm getting hungry. Come on, Martin, speed it up, you know. But he wanted to be right with God. And, and Luther said, if anybody could be saved by their monkery, it was I. Similarly, you know what Paul would have said? 
if anybody could be saved by being a strict, Pharisaic, law-obedient person, it was me. I was head of my class. I was stellar. I was up here. I was devoted. I was zealous. I was righteous. If anybody could be saved by obedience to the law, it was me. And he's not bragging. He is just stating a fact. But Paul wasn't saved. He wasn't saved. He was as lost as anybody else. But then God got a hold of him by manifesting Jesus to him. And it transformed his whole life just like that. And the only explanation is that he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. This change cannot be explained by the fact that he was a strict Pharisee. He would abide by all the rules. That doesn't change anybody. The law was never intended to transform us. The purpose of the law was what? To show us that we're sinners and we need Christ. Another purpose of the law is to keep sinners in check. And then another purpose of the law is to direct us in how we should live. But the law can never empower us to live holy, obedient, God-pleasing lives. It was never intended to. Only the grace of God can do that. When the grace of God gets a hold of us, look out. John Newton understood the grace of God. That's why he was able to write to him Amazing Grace. It's an autobiographical hymn he's describing himself when he says, God saved a wretch like me. Uh, John Newton was a wretched man. He was born on July 24th, sometime in the 18th century. I don't know what year. But I know the day because we, we have a birthday. Born on the same day, July 24th. Uh, but he was a wretch. He, he was a slave trader. He was a drunk. He was a promiscuous man. And he was a persecutor of the faith. He was part of the military. He abandoned the military. He was hunted down. But then God got a hold of him. On one occasion, he wrote, he wrote a letter to a friend describing his conversion. And it sounds reminiscent of the Apostle Paul, Paul's conversion. This is what he wrote. I, though long a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared. And though banished into the wilds of Africa where I was the sport, yea, the pity of slaves, I was by a series of providences little less than miraculously recovered from that house of bondage and at length appointed to preach the faith I had long labored to destroy. John Newton said as well, once I was a persecutor, but now I'm the preacher. God transformed his life. And at the end of his life, he composed his own epitaph. He wanted it to be on his plain tombstone. He didn't want any other inscriptions. He wanted all the glory to go to God. He wanted it to be clear that the only explanation for the transformation in his life was the grace of God. And this was his epitaph. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a slave, or excuse me, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. 
just like the Apostle Paul. The only explanation for Newton's life, Paul's life, was that the grace of God transformed him. So his best argument for a gospel of grace was his very life. It's the only explanation for why there was such a radical change. And then one final charge that came against him. They were saying that Paul is a preacher of a gospel of grace, 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 without any need to be circumcised or obey the law of Moses to be right with God because he's a people pleaser. He's a people pleaser. He's a coward. First of all, Paul preaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because that is what Jesus taught him. That's what Jesus taught him. And second, if you just think about it for a moment, those who knew Paul could just look at his life and they would know that law-keeping, again, did not change his life. His adherence to the law could not be the reason for why he is the man that he was. There has to be another reason. And they know it's because he really encountered Christ. And he really does understand what a transforming gospel is all about. Just look at his life. Isn't it obvious? So is Paul a people pleaser? Well, again, you just have to look at his life. Um, let me back up to verse 6. Let's uh, follow the flow of the argument a little bit. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you preach, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally condemned. Let God damn anyone who would preach a false gospel. And then what does Paul say in verse 10? For am I now seeking the approval of man? <laughs> After a statement like, does it, does it sound like I'm seeking the approval of man when I say something like that? Or am I seeking the approval of God? And his very life, his very, it's obvious at this point. Obviously, he's not seeking the approval of man, or he never would have been so bold as to say what he just said. It's obvious. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He can't do both. He can't preach this gospel of pure grace and please man at the same time. It has to be one or the other. And he says, I'm a servant of Christ. That's why I preach this message. And his own life turns out to be his best defense against those who are bringing charges against him. And the truth is the same is going to be the case for you and I. Randy Alcorn has written a great little book called The Treasure Principle. And in this book, he talks about William Borden. 
Borden was a Yale graduate and he was heir to great wealth, but he rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. He refused even to buy himself a car. Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. After only four months of zealous ministry to Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. Randy Alcorn talks about seeing uh, the epitaph on his grave. And he says, after describing his love and sacrifice for the kingdom of God and for the Muslim people, the inscription ended with a phrase I've never forgotten. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Why would William Borg give up all that money? Why would he give up a comfortable lifestyle in America and go to Muslims where they were hostile? Why would he do that? Because of faith in Christ. Now you might be thinking, oh boy, the only way I can have a good testimony is I go to the mission field and I get myself killed in some way. You know what? You don't have to. Just live a sincere Christian life. Let me close with this illustration. Tim, Tim Keller mentions that after a service one Sunday, a woman came up to him and said, let, let me tell you why I'm in church this morning. And she mentioned that she was working for this company. She, she was a new employee. And she made a big mistake. A costly mistake. Which, which means financially costly to the company. Uh, they were going to fire her but her overseer, her boss, her manager, I don't know what his title was, uh, he stepped forward and he said, you know what, it's not really her fault, it's really my fault. I didn't train her properly. I didn't prepare her for this. It's, it's really my fault. Don't, don't fire her. Um, I'm the one that's to blame for what happened. She was absolutely blown away that this guy would do this. She went into her, her manager's office and she said, why did you do that? And he said, well, you know, you're new to this company. I've been with this company for a, for a long time. You know, I've built up credibility. I knew that, that I could take the hit and I would be okay and they, and they wouldn't fire me. And she said, no, no, why, I, I, I mean, why, why did you do it? Why, why did you? He said, well, they, they, they respect me. You're new. It, it, it really was, was my fault. It was, it was the right thing to do. So I stepped forward and I, you know, I took the hit. And she's like, no, no, no. Come on. I, I want to know. Why did you do that? You know, I've worked for a lot of companies. Managers, they're more than happy to take credit for what I have done. But never have I had somebody take the blame for something that I've done. Now, come on. Come clean with me. I want to know. Why did you do that? And she said, because he was pressing, he goes, okay, finally, I'm only answering this because you're pressing me. I'm a Christian. And Jesus took the blame for me. That's why I did it. And she said, where do you go to church? <laughs> Redeemer Presbyterian Church. So here she was, coming, coming to church. Because a simple businessman living out his Christian faith made a difference. 
brothers and sisters. That, that's all we have to do. We just have to live the Christian life sincerely, faithfully, wherever God has us, and people will know us. God will bring opportunities out. You know what God in heaven would say? I'm going to set up this whole situation. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a great story someday. And God is doing the same for you. Just live it out. And God is going to bring opportunities across your path and you're going to be able to shine for Him just living a simple but powerful Christian life. And it will be the best apologetic defense for the faith that you could ever provide for somebody who has questions. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do indeed thank You for Your amazing grace in our lives. Thank You for Your grace that saves us. Thank You for Your grace that empowers us to walk in faithfulness. Father, help us to live such good lives among our family members and our co-workers and our neighbors that though they may accuse us of doing evil, though they may accuse us of wrongdoing, that they may see our good deeds and someday give glory to You because they come to see that we are who we are because Jesus Christ changed us. It's in His name we pray. Amen.